1 John 3, verses 4 through 10. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Lord Jesus, I pray this morning um, that you would open our ears to hear your word, Lord, that your word would just travel deep into our hearts and transform us. In Jesus' name, amen. So with all due respect to the vegans in the room, the photo on the screen is a photo of the greatest food that could ever be enjoyed by the human palate. What you see on the screen is culinary perfection. For there is nothing better than a good hamburger. I mean, is there anything better than a good hamburger? Oh, that first bite. Oh, what heaven that first bite is. The bun, sesame, freckled manna resting gently on a bed of ketchup and mustard below. Flavors mingling, mingling in a seductive pas de deux. And then a pickle. <laughs> the most playful little pickle. And a slice of tomato, a leaf of lettuce, and a patty of ground beef. So exquisite. This patty swirling in your mouth, breaking apart. And combining again in a fugue of sweets and savory. So delightful. <laughs> this hamburger is no mere sandwich of grilled meat and toasted bread. It's God speaking to us through food. <laughs> There's nothing better than a good hamburger. Would you not agree? Now, all of you instantly, once I went into that, whatever that was, started wondering, wait a minute, he's talking about a hamburger, what gives? The picture on the screen is a picture of a pepperoni on a pizza. Now, I wonder, would it be possible for me to convince you this morning that the picture on the screen is actually a hamburger and not a pizza? Probably not. 
Like, like I, I could try to employ all the words in human language and try all day long, but I don't think I would be able to convince you that that is a hamburger because we can look at it and tell that it's clearly a pizza. You can look at it and tell by what it looks like what it is. And that is the point of the passage that we're looking at this morning. You know what something is by what it is. You know what something is by looking at it. Looking at it tells you exactly what it is. So if you haven't done so, open with me to 1 John. And we're going to be in 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 through 10. And we're in a series in which we're walking through this book of the Bible the Apostle John wrote in 1 John 5.13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So the entire point of this book of the Bible is that we would know that we have received eternal life. As, as I've said week after week so far, the, the book of John is a series of spiritual tests questions, uh, evaluation, self-evaluation tools by which we can ascertain whether or not we are in right relationship with God. So it's a bunch of tests. So the test today that we're taking is the practice test. What kind of practice is your life characterized by? Is your life characterized by the practice of righteousness or by the practice of lawlessness? You can know if you have received eternal life by looking at your life and seeing what it is that you practice. So I can tell you all day long that that picture was the picture of a burger, but the facts wouldn't bear that out. Similarly, we can tell ourselves all day long, I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of Jesus, I've received eternal life. But if the facts of our life don't bear that out, there's... A disconnect. Something is wrong. So we are looking at our life. What does my life actually look like? So today the text actually calls us to differentiate between stated values and actual values. These are organizing business leadership principles. The difference between a stated value and an actual value. We can state all day long what we value. But our life will actually reveal what it is that we actually value. So I could say, I value a clean house. But if I don't ever really do anything to try to even attempt to maintain a clean house, can I rightly say that I value it? I may desire it. I may like to have a clean house. But the children get in the way. No, I'm not saying that. Even if the children get in the way, you can value a clean house because you're just going behind them, right? You're going behind them and cleaning. You're cleaning. You're trying to teach them to clean, right? You value it. You're, you may never get clean, but you value it. So there's an effort to make it real. Or how about health? I value health. But if I never watch my nutrition and if I never even attempt a minute of exercise or a burpee on occasion, can I rightly say that I value good health? Probably Probably not. What we do reveals what we value. What we value is revealed by what we do, period. 
regardless of what we say. This is the practice test. So each of us can say, I am a believer. I value Jesus. I value the gospel. I value eternal salvation and eternal life. And I value grace. We can state that all we want. Or, or we may be able to wax eloquent, definer points of Christian theology. We can say whatever we want to say. But does my life actually show that that's real and true in me? I have to practice what I preach. If it's real, if I actually do value it, if I really do believe it. So what is true of your life? What's true when you sit back and you evaluate and you said, let me just be open and honest with myself. What, what is real? What is it that my life is characterized Why? By. Do I practice righteousness in my life or do I practice lawlessness? So we'll get into the text that way. Look at chapter 3, verse 4. It says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. So in that verse, the word sin is the Greek word harmartia, which means to miss the mark. It was a word used in the first century to refer to a traveler who had missed the right path. Hey, hey dude, you're going, you're going the wrong way, harmartia. Like you're going in the wrong direction. That's what sin is. It's, it's going the wrong way down a one-way street. It's going in the wrong direction, in the opposite direction of the direction that we should be going in. Sin is the wrong path. That is what the word means. So imagine that I've got a meeting, an important meeting, in Wilmington, North Carolina. There's some people from Delaware here, so I don't want to confuse you too much. All right, so Wilmington, North Carolina, important meeting. So I get to I-40. But instead of hanging a right and go east toward Wilmington, I hang a left, and I'm going west. Of what value is it to me to go west on I-40? None, right? None whatsoever. It doesn't help me one bit, regardless of what my intentions may have been. My intentions don't matter. I went the wrong way. I was on the wrong path. The wrong path is the wrong path. So I went the wrong way, ended up in Greensboro. Who chooses Greensboro over Wilmington regardless? Sorry if you're from Greensboro. You have to go through Burlington, and that's bad enough. Sorry, Jimmy. <laughs> Going in the wrong direction doesn't get us to where we're supposed to go to. It is a true statement. So sin is the wrong direction. The verse, verse 4, always say, uh, also tells us that sin is lawlessness. So sin is the wrong path and sin is lawlessness. What's lawlessness? It's anarchy. That's what lawlessness is. So here you have God who spoke the universe into existence. There was nothing, only God. And God spoke into nothing. Nothing listened to him. Nothing obeyed him. And nothing became everything. He spoke ex nihilo. He spoke everything out of nothing. And as the creator of the cosmos, he is also then supreme sovereign ruler. And as the ruler of the entire cosmos, he is the supreme law giver. And he has declared to us, these are my commands. This is my law. These are my statutes for how you are to behave and conduct yourself in my world, says God. 
Well, this is tricky in the 21st century in modern snowflake America, and that includes Christians. I believe we've entered into what I'm calling snowflake Christianity, where the very notion that, well, God gives laws, like that causes us to reject and run the other way, and we don't like that kind of thought— I think that many of us struggle with the thought of God being a divine lawgiver because we don't understand what this is about. And I think we need to understand what this is about, which is purpose. And when you consider two sides of this, what is our purpose, man's purpose? So we're told in Genesis 1.27, it reveals to us that we are created in the image of God. We are not divine. We are man. Male and female, man. What it means that we were created in the image of God means that he created us to bear his image. In other words, we're to be mirrors who reflect the character of God. He made us as beings to reflect his righteous character. That's our purpose. That's what he made us for. Now we have to consider the law. What is the purpose of the law? Uh, Think of the laws of a nation. One of the purposes or reasons for the laws of a nation is actually to reveal or reflect the character of that nation, is it not? You want to know what a people is really like? Look at their laws. So to a large degree, one of the reasons for which God gave us his law is to reveal and to reflect his character to us through his commandments. So let me make my point. In Psalm 19, verse 7, it says, the, Lord, the law of the Lord is perfect. Why? Because the giver of the law is perfect. The law could not be perfect if it did not come from someone who is himself perfect. And that verse then also says that the testimony of the Lord is sure. That word sure there means trustworthy and faithful and reliable. Or how can the law and the commandments and the statutes and the testimony of God be sure unless it comes from someone who is sure? And in Psalm 19, verse 8, it says, The precepts of the Lord are right. The commandments of God are right. The word right there means upright. Well, how can they be upright unless they themselves come from him who is upright in every way, all the time, in whatever he does? In that same verse, verse 8 says, The commandment of the Lord is pure, because it comes from one who is light, in whom there is no darkness. Verse 9, Psalm 19, verse 9 says, The fear of the Lord is clean. Why? Because... In him there is no defilement, there is no sin, there is no defect in God. God is clean. And that verse also says, the rules of the Lord are true. Why? Because God is truth. The commandments of God, verse 9, the commandments of God are righteous altogether because the God who gave them is righteous altogether. So you see that the law, the commandments, reflect and reveal the very character and the nature of God. So if our purpose is to reflect the righteous character of God, then to sin is to repudiate The very purpose for which we were created. If the purpose of the law is to reflect the character of God, then to sin is to rebuke the character of God. 
To sin is to reject who we are and who God is. That's what sin is. To sin, it's rebellion against who created us and what he created us for. In other words, that's anarchy. Is it not? That's lawlessness, living as if there is no lawgiver and living as if there is no law. That is sin. That is lawlessness. That is the wrong path. So the practice test challenges us today to evaluate our hearts real quick, to evaluate our attitude concerning God's law. Those who are on the wrong path have an attitude toward God that's like, surely God didn't mean it when he said all the thou shalts and thou shalt nots. Like, was he really serious about all those commandments? I mean, that, that's what someone on the, wrath, on the wrong path thinks. At, very, at the very best, which is not a good thing, but at the very best, someone who actually practices lawlessness simply approaches the law of God as if God is a life coach giving suggestions for our best life now. As opposed to approaching God's law for what it is, the holy decrees of Almighty God. So... We're challenged this morning to evaluate our hearts and our minds and our attitude toward the commandments that God has decreed to us. Do you take them with utmost seriousness? This is God's law. This is commandments. This is what he wants of us and how he wants us to operate. Like, I, I take this serious. I don't tread upon that ground lightly. Like, do we take it seriously, or do we kind of keep it at arm's length? Well, it doesn't really apply to me, or maybe some other time, not right now. Like, is that how we approach it? What does your life actually look like? Do you practice lawlessness, or do you practice righteousness? Now, one of the things that I love about God, and there's a whole bunch, but one of the things is just how clear God is. He doesn't speak in riddles. God's not there trying to, like, cause us to stumble. He's not the riddler trying to, like, you figure it out. No, God is God. Is God. He communicates perfectly and wonderfully. He knows what we need to hear, when we need to hear. And I love that God speaks in absolutes. I love that his word knows nothing of relativism. His word knows nothing of shades of gray. It's this or that. You're in or you're out. There's no middle ground. There's nothing in between. I love that God speaks to us that way so that we are not misled and so that we don't miss it. So here's what God tells us in 1 John chapter 3. There's two paths, only two. Those are the options. There is the wrong one, and then there's the right one. And so here we are. Which path am I on? Which one is it? So look again at verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sin practices lawlessness. That's one path. That's the wrong path, I would say. Clearly, because sin means the wrong path. That's the wrong one, practicing lawlessness. Now look at verses 5 through 7. 
It says, you know that he, referring to Jesus, appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him, meaning not saved. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. So there's the second path. Going down the path that practices righteousness. There's only two. You're either on the path, the wrong one of lawlessness and sin, or you're on the path of righteousness. Now, those verses were read earlier, and I just reread them. And I think I need to address that maybe just possibly there could be someone freaking out in the room right now. Those verses says that if you've received eternal life or you know Jesus or you've been saved, that you never sinned. But I just sinned two seconds ago when I yawned at the pastor while he's preaching. <laughs> I'm kidding. No one did. Not in here, ever. <laughs> so some people are like, those verses make it sound like if, if you're saved or if you're a follower of Christ, you never sinned. That is not what the Apostle John is saying in these verses. If he said that, he would be contradicting not only a bunch of other verses in the Bible, he would be contradicting himself in the very same letter that we are studying in this sermon series. So look at 1 John 2.1. John says, my little children, I'm writing these things so that you may not sin, implying that you can, could, more than likely will, which is why he adds the second part. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He knew we would sin even after we come into fellowship with God, which is why he says, when you sin, don't freak out and don't panic. Jesus has got your back. If your faith is in Christ and you've been immersed into the grace of God and you're united with him, you shouldn't sin. But when you do, God still loves you. You're safe. You're secure. It's why it's called eternal life. Okay? Wonderful promise. Wonderful truth of the Bible. So let me unpack what the verse means. In verse 4 is the word practice. Right? That word literally is the word doing. What the, ver- what the most literal translation into English of that verse is, everyone doing sin does lawlessness. So I could sit here and bore you with a really awful Greek grammar lesson because this letter was written in Koine Greek. I'll try not to do that. All I'm going to say is that that word practice, which means doing, is in the present tense participle. Blah, blah, blah. What that means is that this is referring to a person who conscientiously, deliberately, continually, all of the time, wantingly, willingly, unrepentantly chooses to continue down the wrong path. That is who this is talking about. It's it's the person who says, I know I'm supposed to go east toward Wilmington. I don't care. I'm going to go west to Greensboro. I choose to go in the wrong direction. That is who this verse is talking about. It's those who choose to practice to do sin, those who make it a lifestyle, those who are in a loving, committed relationship with their sin. I love it. I'm committed to it. It's committed to me. 
in contrast to those who are on the wrong path, actively practicing sin, are those who are on the right path, practicing righteousness. So before we go any further, we have to understand how in the world does a person go from the wrong path to the right path? And the text tells us it's not by our virtue that that takes place. It is by the grace of God that that takes place. Look at verse 5. It reminds us that Jesus came to do what? To take away sin This is the gospel that we sing about and we celebrate. This is why we're here this morning. It is because of the good news of Jesus Christ, which is the Son of God leaves heaven. He comes to earth. He goes to a cross. On that cross, he takes our guilt, our shame, and our sin to such a point that he actually becomes our guilt and our sin and our shame. And on the cross, he paid the price. He took judgment and wrath upon himself to pay for the price of our sin. He then died. He died our spiritual death on our behalf, sacrificing himself. He died. His body is taken to a tomb. Guess what also went into the tomb? Guess what he took into the tomb with him? He personally took our sin, our guilt, our shame, our fear, our worry, our transgressions with him. He took it to the tomb and to the grave. On the third day, Jesus stood up, walked up out of that grave. And guess what he left behind? Our sin, our death, our darkness, our judgment. I, I always like to pick on Easter because we've done this for years. Christians and churches everywhere. We Easter, yay, the tomb is empty. False, the tomb is not empty. Jesus isn't in it. His body's not in it. He was raised from the dead, but that tomb's not empty. There were some cloths that he left behind. Those grave cloths that his body was wrapped in, he left them there. Guess what those cloths represent? Our sin. The old has passed. He took our old and he left it and he buried it there. And for anyone whose faith is in Jesus, there is no room in the grave. There's no room in darkness. It has no dominion over us whatsoever. It's buried dead and done because of what Jesus did. That's all the gospel that we celebrate. So this sacrifice on the cross, through that we are cleansed, washed, washed purified sin taken away from us as far as the east is from the west all through the sacrifice of Jesus and it's because he loved us it is through that work of Christ it is through that that he then takes us off of the wrong path and puts us on the right one his grace is what turns our life around he puts us on the right path. Just know this, the right path, the path of righteousness has no on-ramps. Said the New Jersey turnpike. You can't get on or off that sucker. God puts us on there. It's God who does it. That's the story of the gospel. So when we receive eternal life, our lives change direction by the very heart and grace of God. Jesus said in in John 14, 6, he says, I am the way. I am the way to the Father. I am the path. He is the path. So if we are united to Christ in faith, we are by definition on the right path, are we not? 
We are by, de- by default, we are on the righteous path. Now, sadly and unfortunately, we still sin, right? Well, how can that be? How can I be on the right path and still sin? I, I, I go back to that I-40 example. It's like we're actually going east toward Wilmington. And then from time to time, what do we do? We throw it in reverse. So we fall short, we stumble, we get distracted, we fall short, get tempted, we backslide, we go off-roading. And for those of us who have received eternal life, for, for those that which this is true, when we throw it in reverse, which happens often, then what do we do? We repent. We repent. We see, uh, why is the car in reverse? Oh, my bad. Shift. We, re- we repent. We confess it. We come clean. We put it back in drive so that we can head back down the path of righteousness that, we, that God had already put us on. We repent. So here's the story of King David in the Old Testament. This is shocking to a lot of people, but King David was a rapist and a murderer. He was the king of Israel. One day, he's on the roof of his palace, looks out, sees Bathsheba. She's kind of hot. Has his guards bring her into his chambers. He's the king of Israel. Let me tell you, what chance does she really get to say no? She's a married woman. Nonetheless, can she, in that situation, that's rough. That's, she, she's not saying no. He's the king of the land, the monarch of the land. At the very least, what happened to her was date rape, which is still rape and a violation. What happens as a result of that? She gets pregnant. David freaks out. He doesn't want his sin discovered. He doesn't want her husband or anyone else to know what he's done. So he orders her husband to the front lines of the next battle so that it would be more likely that Uriah, his name, would die. And he does. Guess what you call that? That's straight-up murder. That's murder. He was a murderer. He was a rapist. He was an awful, wretched sinner. And how does the Bible describe King David? How does God describe King David? He's a man after my own heart. Clearly not because he was sinless, clearly because he was not perfect, but because when he was confronted with his sin and he saw he had thrown it in reverse, he repented. He was quick to turn his life back. That's what it means to practice righteousness. And I I really want everyone, like, as much as possible, sit forward right now, and I want you to really listen to what's about to be shared with you. This is what it means to practice righteousness. The word righteousness means the act of doing what God requires. The act of doing what God requires. Yes, that means obeying his law, seeking and striving to be obedient to the commands of God. But it also, also, also includes that when we fail, that we repent. It's both. 
one of God's commandments to us is to repent. He calls us to repentance. He wouldn't command us to repent if we didn't need to repent. The very fact that he calls us to repent is God saying, I know that you're going to fail in following my law perfectly, but when you realize that you do, turn your life around, which is exactly what the word repent means. It's to turn away from sin and turn back toward God. Folks, if you've received eternal life, we, we may fall in sin, but we don't walk in it. That's the difference. We repent when we fall. We pick ourselves up. That's what it means to repent. We pick ourselves up. He, God picks us up, his hand, his spirit. Come on, let's, let's try better. Let's get better. Let's keep moving. Let's keep moving. repeatedly we're told in Scripture, pursue righteousness, pursue righteousness, pursue righteousness. And over and over in Scripture, we're told that Jesus himself is the righteous one. So to pursue righteousness is to pursue Jesus. It's to pursue imitating Jesus, following Jesus, becoming more like Jesus. Matthew 3.8 tells, tell, tells us to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. The fruit of repentance is conforming to Jesus. Repentance is the very means by which we grow as reflections of God's righteous character. Those who practice repentance are the ones who practice righteousness. Those who practice repentance are the ones who practice righteousness. This is the practice test. Those who've received eternal life practice righteousness, which includes repenting when we fall. Those who practice righteousness take God's law seriously. In fact, we love it. We don't cringe at it. It's God's law. It's good. It's right. We love the law of the Lord. Blessed is he who delights in the law of the Lord day and night. He delights in it, meditates on it day and night. Psalm 1. We take it seriously, so we take sin seriously. So we don't justify sin. Oh, well, it's because we were in love. No. We don't make excuses for sin. Well, it's because you don't understand how I grew up and the things that were done to me. Folks, I, I get that many of us have scars from atrocities that have been done to us. I get it. But in no way is an excuse for us to sin today or later. So we don't justify it. We don't make excuses for it. We don't play in it. We don't downplay it. We don't think it's cute. We don't brag about it. Well, you should have been there when she said what she said, man. I took my earrings off. <laughs> you should have heard. I don't know why. Don't ask. We don't brag about it. We don't glorify sin. We make it out as if it was some good thing that we did. I gave them a piece of my mind. You should have been there. Like, that's not what those who practice righteousness do. We take God's law seriously. We love it. And then when we fail, we repent. So right now, we need to survey our life. What are you practicing? I'm just going down the wrong way, and I really don't care. 
I'm just practicing lawlessness as if there is no lawgiver. I don't really care. Or are you practicing repentance? Like, I want to obey God. I'm trying my best. And I fell down. I picked myself back up. I put it back in drive. And I keep going after Jesus. I keep going after Jesus. Which, what, which is it that you're practicing? What does your life actually look like? So let me further illustrate the difference between those who practice lawlessness and those who practice righteousness. Turn your eyes to the screen Hector, my dad, just, he just started sweating. <laughs> I don't know of a person who has a greater phobia of snakes than my dad. Maybe Rico. He's not even looking at the screen right now. <laughs> Let me introduce you to our little friend here. His name is the Inland Taipan. For those of you who care, Oxyurinus microlipatitus. The venom of this monster is the most toxic of any snake in the world. Unlike most snakes that will pretty much hunt anything that they can get their mouth around, this critter specializes in hunting mammals. So its venom is especially suited for warm-blooded creatures. What are we? What are we? Warm-blooded mammals. The venom in this cuteness here on the screen. <laughs> One bite is capable of killing 100 grown men. One bite. It's a particularly fast snake. And when it attacks, it doesn't bite once. It keeps on. And with each strike, it further envenomates the prey. So could I... <laughs> could I interest any of you in... The inland Taipan. There are lunatics. There are those lunatics in the world that like, absolutely, I'll take one as a pet. The rest of us sane, normal, rational, logical humans, there is no way I'm taking one of those as a pet. I'm not going to pet it. There's no way. I can't. It's way too dangerous. It's way too dangerous a creature. Folks, sin is a viper. Do we recognize this? Sin is a viper with a venom that is toxic to the soul. So those who practice lawlessness say, oh yeah, I'll take sin as my pet. as my pet snake and I want to keep it close. Those of us who practice righteousness take an ax to its head. The practice test is this. Is your life characterized by keeping sin close and cuddling with it and keeping it as your pet? Or is your life characterized by fleeing, by fleeing from it, running from it, and trying to avoid its dangers as much as possible? All right, thank you, Wendy. Let's take this off the screen so Rico can open his eyes. Let me, let me illustrate the difference real quick. Those, just so that you know, those who practice lawlessness like to keep this around. They don't see sin the same way that we see that thing on the screen. And we should look at sin way worse than what we just saw on the screen. But those who practice lawlessness practice just a little bit. Just a little bit. 
See, it's just a little bit of gambling. I know God said to be a good steward of what he's given to, but it's just a little bit of gambling. Oh, it's just a little bit of nudity and sexual content in that movie, not recognizing that God has said abstain from all sexual immorality. Oh, it's just a little bit. Oh, it's just a little white lies, just a little bit of gossip. There's really no harm. It's all, it's all well and good. And we said, bless their heart. So it's just a little bit. It's okay. It's okay. It's just a little bit of drunkenness. Never mind that God said, do not be drunk on wine, which is debauchery. Never mind that. Just a little bit. It's just one time. That is equivalent to taking that thing that was on the screen and sitting on the couch just a little bit, just a little bit. So those who actually claim to believe and value the gospel run from sin. We don't say a little bit. We flee from it. We don't keep it around and cuddle it and pet it. No, we run from it. So what does your life look like? Just a little bit? Or run from it. The just a little bit is the path of sin and lawlessness. The other path is going further and further and further away from sin that is toxic and hurtful and damaging. The difference between those who practice lawlessness and those who practice righteousness ultimately comes down to one thing in its identity. Look at verses 9 and 10. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. So for those of us who have received eternal life, We don't live a life of unrepentant, willing, continuous, conscientious, deliberate sin. We're unable to. We are born of God. We may sin and backslide, but it's not our lifestyle. We've been reborn. How? Because it says in those verses that the seed of God abides in us. You know what that seed is? It's the seed of the glorious grace of God Almighty. He has planted it and it has taken root in us. And as a result of that seed, we are different. We've been transformed from sinners into now sons and daughters of God. So whereas before I had no relationship and no fellowship with God, whereas before I was just contentious toward God and his law, whereas before I was heading in the wrong direction further and further away from God, I couldn't get further away. Away from him practicing lawlessness. Now, by his grace, I have been born again. And as a result of that, I get to call God Father. Not just Father, but Abba, Father, virtually Daddy. What that means is for those of us who've received eternal life, every day is Father's Day. Every day we give praise and thanks and we pay homage to our great Father who is above, protecting and providing and guiding and watching and loving us. I'm a dad. I'll be honest with you, I could care less about Father's Day. It's a made-up day, made up by the man, just to take our money and Hallmark and Hallmark channels. I, I don't care if my kids give me a present. 
or a gift. If they do, fine. It's cute. I appreciate it. It's all well and good. I don't begrudge it. I appreciate it for what it is. But that's not what I want. I want gifts or platitudes or sentimentality on one day of the year. Tell you what I want as a dad. I want to see my kids grow as love-filled, faith-filled, hope-filled followers of Jesus. The greatest gift my kids could ever give me is to give me the opportunity to see them walk in the ways of the Lord. If I feel that way, how much more does God above our Father, how much does it bless his heart to look down upon his sons and daughters and see us reflecting his righteousness? Ponder what it took to make you, turn you into a child of God. How bad is sin? It took God himself dying on a cross. That's how bad sin is. And he willingly did it. He goes to the cross and he dies your death to pay the cost so that you may receive grace and forgiveness and receive eternal life and be transformed into his child. That's how bad it is. It took the death of God to do that in you. And that's how much he loves you, that he was willing to do it. So have you received that? Have you embraced that truth to where you've given yourself over to it? You have stepped into it and now you walk in it. Is that true of you? Have you embraced that truth and hugged it into your heart, into your soul? So I think that we need to evaluate our lives. You can know what something is by looking at it. You can know what your life is, whether you received eternal life, by taking an objective, honest, humble look. What does your life look like? May I tell you, if it looks like a duck, if it quacks like a duck, if it waddles like a duck, guess what it'd be? It's a duck. You practice righteousness or do you practice lawlessness? You can tell. You can know. You know. I can't judge you, but you know for yourself. Evaluate. Look at it. Look at your life. Which path are you on? Are you striving to keep God's commandments? Do you take them seriously? Or do you keep sin close and pet it? It's all cuddly until it bites, and it always does. Do you practice conscientious, continuous repentance before the Lord. And every time God's there with open arms like the prodigal father in the story. Come on. Come on. Every time. Do you see that the seed of God is actually abiding in you and that it's blooming into righteousness? Do you see it bloom more and more over time as God is at work in your life? What is true? Are you a son and daughter of God or is it something else? So I want to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. We're going to close in the song. And while the praise team comes up, I'm just going to give you some space to just sit quietly and just think and reflect and meditate. Ask God, say, Lord, open my heart and my eyes to the truth. Lord, please let me know which path am I on. Am I on the right one or the wrong one? What, am I kidding myself? Am I a practicer of lawlessness or a practicer of righteousness? If you're here and, and maybe you've never personally embraced the grace of God and giving your life to follow after Jesus, folks, that's where it begins. Nothing else matters until you get that square in your heart. So that might be you today. You need to... Give your life to the Lord for the first time.
And if that's you, praise God. What a wonderful thing. Just enter into it. Step into it that you may walk in it. For the rest of us, maybe we have received this gift from God in the past, but man, we, we shifted into reverse a while ago, and we've been driving backwards for a while. And you know what it is. Maybe it's concerning your marriage or your parenting or your finances or something. There's something in your life's like, let's get this in drive. Let's go forward. Let's go straight. What is it that God is asking you, calling you to repent of that you may reflect his glory? Lord, Father, we give you praise. You are our good Father, gracious and kind, our provider, our protector, our leader, our guide. You've called us to know you as our Abba Father. You've called us to draw near to you, to live and walk as your sons and daughters. What a privilege, what a humbling privilege that is. And it is not by our works, but it is a gift of your grace extended through that cross, through that empty tomb. Lord, I pray for all of us in this room that we would make the right decision now. Anyone who's never really said yes to you, Lord, that they would say yes. For the rest of us, to plow forward reflecting your glory as only your sons and daughters can. In Jesus' name, amen.